morning. We're back in Acts, and we're going to continue this travel narrative of Paul going to Jerusalem and ultimately to Rome. And the theme has been that there are uh, some persecutions awaiting him on the trip, particularly in Jerusalem. So that's where we've been. Let me go to the next slide here. This we covered last week. I'll give a review and then we'll go, go on ahead. I think most of you are probably here. <clears throat> and this was on the heels of the fact that Philip had four daughters who prophesied. And this is keeping with a theme in Luke X that is based in Joel that your sons and daughters will prophesy. And that's found in Acts chapter 2 when Joel 2 is, is cited. And so what, what we did last week was we did a walkthrough of Luke. And here's some of the summaries. We read these. And that the very beginning of Luke is a preview of what's to come. And so at the birth of Messiah, the Holy Spirit came upon women and men, and they prophesied. And one of the things that I, uh, I call this previews of salvation, I got that term from Reverend Tannehill in his commentary, previews of salvation, Joel, there will come up in Joel 2, 29, when cited by Peter. Now the point, this is really important. And it's important when we get to 1 Corinthians 14, eventually upstairs, should the Lord tarry. And uh, I will continue preaching through 1 Corinthians, and we'll get to that. But we need to know what prophecy is and what is the typical or necessary content of it. And we saw last week from these different passages that I read to you is that they were prophesying about messianic salvation, the mighty deeds of God, God's mercy, God keeping his promises, the coming of Messiah, those who prepare for the coming of Messiah, and the things that will happen because of the coming of Messiah, including the rise and fall of many. That was in the mouth of Simeon. The rise and fall of many in Jerusalem. So one of the themes in Luke Acts is announced by Simeon, and many times here in these passages, the Spirit comes upon people, and they prophesy. But they prophesy about the mighty deeds of God. And the rise and fall of, of many in Israel is a theme that is still continuing as we are now in Acts chapter 21. Because Paul's journey now to Jerusalem will lead to the rise and fall of even more. Some will receive messianic salvation by believing. Many already did, and they're waiting, Paul, when he gets there. And then many will become violently opposed, as they were to Jesus. And so there is, when there is a visitation of God, a visitation leads to Salvation for some and judgment for most. That's what visitations look like. There are visitations in the Old Testament 
when Yahweh comes to, insp on, to inspect. Now, some of this certainly uh, anthropomorphism because God already knows what's going on. But he comes to inspect, as he did at the Tower of Babel. What he found was really bad. And so you see these judgment scenes where when God comes, many are judged and some are rescued. So that's what happens here. So, so Elizabeth, Mary, Zechariah, Simeon, Anna. So men and women prophesy. So that is not shocking when it happens. And it'll come up in 1 Corinthians. Now, the other thing that's going on is the parallel of Jesus on a trip to Jerusalem to be rejected is repeated in Acts as Paul is on a trip to Jerusalem to be rejected. The disciple is not greater than the master. How they treated the master, they'll treat the disciple. So those who would be faithful to God and true to the gospel and gospel preaching is indeed prophesying. It absolutely is, because we're declaring the mighty deeds of God, what he did in Christ. We're declaring the terms of salvation, and we're predicting that based on where someone is with the gospel, where their eternal destiny lies, rise and fall salvation or judgment. Once the gospel is proclaimed clearly, forthrightly, it lays great responsibility on everyone who hears. You can no longer claim neutrality, not that you ever really could, and you're face to face with what the claims are. That's exactly what happened to me. Once it was driven into my heart, I knew in an instant the one who I hated, the one who I blasphemed, the one who I railed against was truly the Lord Jesus, and that if I continued, I would go to hell and I'd deserve it. I knew that in a moment. And I said, I want to pray. And I prayed, and I went in and told my future father-in-law that I came to Christ I went back to work and told the guys that I had heard me blaspheme the night before that now I was a Christian. And wow, what an interesting life it's been. Amen. But no going back. There's no going back. Now, what about the rejection and welcome? There's a key word here. I went through Luke. Last week, I pointed out the pairs of people, the women and men who prophesy. Here is this need for uh, welcoming and receiving. Now, it begins in Luke 9 with, and we've talked about this, the Mount of Transfiguration is a key scene in Luke. It says Luke 9, 30, 31, and behold, two men were talking with him, that's Jesus, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking, were speaking, of his departure, I've told you this before, but bears repeating, the word departure in the Greek is exodus, literally his exodus. I have a, this is my note here, not so much on the slide. Maybe I should go one more forward. Okay, there we go. 
Agabus prophesied. We're leading up to what that looks like. So Moses and Elijah, two prophets from the Old Testament, because Moses certainly said in Deuteronomy 18.15 that God would raise up a prophet like him, listen to him as Messiah. And so there's Elijah and Moses, two key figures, speaking of his exodus, which he is about to accomplish, accomplish at Jerusalem. So departure is exodus and accomplishes plerao, plerao. Or another way to translate that would be to fulfill. His exodus that he fulfills at Jerusalem is his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. So Jesus' journey to Jerusalem that begins in Luke 9, goes all the way to the end, it ends in heaven at the right hand of God. Jerusalem rejects him, but he will go on to heaven. And that can be seen in Luke 9.51. I'll read it to you. Luke 9.51, where the travel narrative begins. Now it happened that when the days were approaching for him to be taken up, he set his face. The word for face is prosopon in the Greek. And that reference to setting his face is an allusion to the Old Testament when a prophet sets his face, meaning nothing will get me deterred. Nothing will distract me. Nothing will stop me. My face is set. I'm going. No matter what happens. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, So, excuse me. Now, it happened that when the days were approaching for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Approaching Sum plerao, here's that same word with a prefix, plerao, to be fulfilled, sum, fulfilled with, which is an adjective, no, excuse me, a prefix intensive. It's intensified. He will go to Jerusalem. In Luke 9, 52, and he said, messengers before him, they went and entered to a village of the Samaritans in order to prepare for him. In verse 9, Luke 9, 53, Luke 9, 53, And they did not welcome him because he was determined to go to Jerusalem from the LEB. So he goes to Samaria, and they did not welcome him because he was going to Jerusalem. Now, the word welcome, and I'm using the LEB because that's how it should be translated, dekomai, very important word. The word dekomai means more than just say hi Hey, you're going through our place. Okay, whatever. Now, welcome is a strong word, and it means to receive in a uh, an honorable way as you would receive an important person or family member that you want to see. It's a word for receiving in a welcoming way. Our word welcome is really pretty good. Now, this same word shows up later in Paul's writing about those who are deceived by Antichrist because they do not welcome the truth in order to be saved. So when the gospel is preached to anyone, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Christians are ones who you may all prophesy. The gospel is predictive. 
and is giving us a crisis of a visitation of God by the very Holy Spirit who inspired the gospel, the word of God. And when we're faced with it, we either reject it or welcome it. You can't be neutral. To say, well, Jesus is kind of cool. I don't mind. I know what they say. He gets us. <laughs> oh, they had that at a Super Bowl again. They had some... Yeah. It, it, the, whole, the whole gospel is gutted of any meaning because right. you don't see it a real need. I want somebody to get me. Yeah, yeah he does get us, and that's why we're under wrath <laughs> if we haven't repented. So the, what, uh, the American version of this, and I'm sure other countries have the same, is so pathetic, it's really not reality. And I wonder if anybody's actually read Luke. Have the people read Luke? Or the people who are putting this stuff out, have they read Luke? Amen. And if they have read it, they'll see that Jesus is on a journey to be rejected. Okay? In the, uh, the so-called triumphal entry in Luke, it's actually just the disciples who are praising him. The, the leadership of Israel is against him uh, all along. So that's in Luke 9. This word decomai comes up. And then Luke 13, 33, I'll just kind of work through this. Luke 13, 33, and 34. <clears throat> and we'll see that what I'm trying to establish is that Paul's trip to be rejected is an echo of Jesus' trip to be rejected to establish the theme that Jerusalem is facing judgment because she rejects the prophets that are sent to her. That's the theme in Luke X. So in Luke 13, 33, nevertheless, it is necessary. There's our word for divine necessity for me to be on the way today, tomorrow, and on the next day, because it is not possible for a prophet to perish outside Jerusalem. Now, this doesn't mean no prophet ever perished outside of Jerusalem. It's already happened in the Old Testament. But in this setting, it's not possible that Jesus would perish. The, the prophet, the, the prophet, priest, and king, he would perish as he goes for, on his trip. And Paul's not going to perish in Jerusalem. He's going to go on to Rome. But the point is, Jerusalem is in serious trouble. And then the lament in verse 34. There's a, the biblical category for this is lament. Luke 13, 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How many times I wanted, I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her own brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Now, we're going to talk about something important here. The LEB has wanted, and the Greek is thalo, which is willing. <coughs> you are not willing, <coughs> but it's negated. Uh, thalo, will, one of the words for world, will, the other is bulabai, only negated. Not. We don't want it. We've got a different agenda. We think the Romans are going to help us. Yeah, they destroyed the place in 70 AD, but 
they would rather make a deal with Rome, just like in the Old Testament, they'd rather make a deal with Egypt. And it, it went bad. So not willing. So there is, and this brings up the idea that God desires in one sense what he does not decree in another. And uh, Mark Amundsen was talking about that a little bit Wednesday night. I was able to get here to hear him. He's a good teacher. What a blessing for the young man to be a, a teacher like that. And we were blessed. And I'm going to suggest something to you. And it'll do you a lot of good if you listen to it, if you want to mind an old man telling you something. The fact is that we're way better off to embrace all the what the Scripture says rather than reject part of it because we don't like it. Amen. Or because it seems to us it can't both be true. In other words, it seems it can't be true that Jesus desires, being God and having authority, desires the gathering of Jerusalem like a hen and her chicks at one of the same time pronounces judgment upon her. How can both things be true? Now, theologians over the centuries have written many analogies to show how that can be, and I've written about it. But before we try to process it all, why not just be willing to accept that the Holy Spirit inspired the Scripture and we're going to embrace the whole counsel of God? And trust God that as we continue to study and read, this will all make sense to us. Let's just go that far. Some people get so angry, they just want to throw out at least half of it. We can't throw anything out. This is just what, this is what it says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wanted to gather. Luke 18.31. And taking aside the 12, Luke 18.31, he said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and all the things that are written by the prophets with reference to the Son of Man will be accomplished. It'll all be, it'll all be accomplished. Teleo, there would come to its purposeful place, teleo in the Greek. So, all, so he tells the twelve, everything about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Now, there's a lot about the Son of Man, Eric. You're seeing that in your eschatology. It's from Daniel, right? Amen. Daniel 7. Um, I think I cited that in that article we just published. Daniel 7, the Son of Man is a reference to Messiah. And there's a lot yet to happen. So he's telling this to the disciples. So what does the Old Testament say will be accomplished concerning Messiah? Well, if you look at the speeches in Acts, this is the way Luke writes. The major speeches reveal his main themes. If you want to know Acts, read the big speeches. The speech by Peter, speech by Stephen, later speeches by Paul, and to whom they're given, and you'll learn a lot. That is the way Luke writes. And uh, Jessica in her homeschooling had pointed out she was studying some of the classical writings of the ancient Greek writers. And that's exactly how they wrote. If you wanted to know the theme, you'd read, you'd read a, a speech by a major character. 
and then you learn what the writing is about, the speech by the major character. Luke writes that way. Only his writing is inspired by the Holy Spirit, unlike the Greek classics. Now, Luke 18, 32 to 34. Luke 18, 32 to 34. I'll read it to you. And for he, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and be mocked and mistreated and spit on. And after flogging him, Luke 18, 33, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. You know, when, when we preach the gospel, we often say, say that. Jesus predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. Here it is right here. Jesus predicted it. Jesus is God, the Son. He doesn't predict things in air. So this is exactly what will happen. Luke 18, 34. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was concealed from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. They didn't get it. It was said again and again, but the disciples didn't get it. They didn't get the rejection part. They didn't get the fact that this is all headed toward death. And uh, we need the Holy Spirit. It's not that the words are meaningless. They're meaningful. It's not that they don't mean what they say. They do. But they still had this confusion and this darkness. They didn't understand it. Luke 19.41. Look at this one. This, this really ought to get our attention. Luke 19.41. And when he approached and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the incarnate one, fully human, fully God, wept over the city of Jerusalem. He didn't delight in what was going to eventually happen, but he wept out of love and compassion. I'm going to affirm to you that God loves and God cares, and he takes no delight over the death of anyone who dies. That's a biblical truth. I'll read it to you in a bit from the Old Testament. Say, Luke 19.42, if you are not, if you, excuse me, if you had known on this day, even you, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This is a divine passive from God. God hid it from their eyes. So Jesus, at one and the same time, weeps over Jerusalem and proclaims that these things are hidden from your eyes. That's a judgment of hardening. It breaks my heart when I get long emails and letters or whatever, back and way back when, poor email, railing against the sovereignty of God. God can't do this. God can't do that. In fact, the way you learn everything in the Bible is find out what God can't do. And that solves all the problems. That is not what we're learning here. We're learning the love, the compassion, the concern that Jesus, the Son of Man, Son of God, has for every person. 
And we're also learning that God's purposes are coming to pass. But even at that, they're saving purposes. Because with Jerusalem rejecting Messiah, crucifying him, according to the scriptures, and, be, and him being raised, is bringing salvation to the Gentiles. And it's ultimately resulting in salvation. And woe to the person who says, I'm going to tell God how he has to be, and then let him teach me how he is. And uh, that's just a scourge on our whole Christendom, is that we think we have to join something from church history and follow that and then reject everything else we don't like. We can't, we're not allowed to do that. We have to embrace the whole counsel of God. Okay, so he wept, but these are hidden from your eyes. That reminds me of a Dr. Versipet moment. Uh, that teacher I like so much, read the text. We're reading through Matthew, and it says something about, I thank thee, Lord, you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent, revealed it to babes. And the student says, Dr. Versipet, God doesn't hide things from people. No. Read it again. <laughs> so he reads it again. What does it make sense? Well, keep reading Matthew. You might understand. It's not, and then I, I thought, well, I said things like that too. And I got the same. I think there's a little Lutheran in everybody. <laughs> Jesus was telling, you know, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, and by no means entered a kingdom. And I said, well, that's the law of gospel. He's telling us the law, so we know we can't do it. Sounds like Luther, doesn't it? What does Jesus mean? And so there is an answer to it in Matthew, by the way. I didn't know it at the time. And that's the fact that with, with God, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. More difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And so that's a theme in Matthew. I said, well, that's a theme in Matthew the impossibility other than God's work, then I would have got, that's a good reading. But it took me decades later to find the good reading. Uh, I say that somewhat facetiously. I think I've seen it before that. But think about it. They're hidden from your eyes. Verse 43, look at this. Luke 19:43. For the day will come upon you and your enemies will be will put up an embankment against you and will surround you and press you hard from all directions. Verse 44, Luke 19. And they will raise you to the ground, R-A-Z-E. You and your children within you will not leave a stone upon a stone within you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That is one of the most important passages in Luke-Acts. Luke emphasized the destruction of the temple. Matthew has a lot more material about the very end of the age and the tribulation and then the millennial kingdom. There's stuff like that more pertinent in Matthew. But here, Luke is laser-focused on that at Jerusalem and the temple. And he doesn't actually narrate it, so he wrote before 70 AD. And uh, how is it that they didn't recognize the day of their visitation? Episcope, in the Greek, episcope, 
Uh, it's where it means to, it's like a memory verse, like to scope out, to come and check. But this is even more profound because it's God inspecting his own city. What that you knew the things that make for peace? What is Jer Jerusalem? Shalom, peace. Peace has to do with messianic salvation and ultimate well-being. Peace isn't what you gain by making a deal with the Romans or the Egyptians or the Babylonians. Peace is what happens when people are right with God. You need to be right with the Prince of Peace to have shalom. And so that I was working on when I was preparing for this. I have a little bit more. See, I got a smaller soundboard, so I got room to put my papers. You notice that? Yes, please, wow, I was going to just mention chronologically this. Um, you had mentioned it's probably a poor title. We call it the triumphal entry, but it's actually very tragic because they do not see the Messiah at their visitation. But more than likely, we've often said in church history that this occurred on Sunday. So we call it Palm Sunday. But more than likely, this actually occurred on Monday, which would have been the 10th day of Nisan. And the reason why is because Christ is crucified on the 14th. He's the Passover. So this happens four days prior on the 10th day of Nisan. Well, if you go back to Exodus 12, that was the very day the Israelites were to select the lamb without blemish. So the lamb of God without blemish, he comes in on the day of visitation and they reject him. And it really, I think, adds to this scope of when visitation comes from God and you don't have the lamb, you don't get peace, you get judgment. That's the tragedy that we see. That goes back to the Exodus. Exactly. Yeah, the Exodus was a visitation, wasn't it? It was a visitation. Yeah, in the Exodus, Yahweh visits. And you better have the sacrificial lamb. The Egyptians didn't. What happened to them? They wiped out. The firstborn were, yes. So I'm just having a realization that when we read about the false peace that everybody thinks they're getting, they're thinking that they have salvation from God, right? Because he's, but he's not. So the false peace, what they're getting is the judgment. I mean, I don't know, somehow I was just like realizing what peace, what you were defining peace yeah. as. Right and now, false peace. Yep. They're making peace by deals, right? Right, but it's... It's not real peace. But yet they're probably thinking they're having peace with God. Well, I'm not Save sure what they're thinking, but they, until they come to Messiah, they don't. Right. Yeah. And the Antichrist is going to have so, even a better deal to offer. And uh, then once the hellishness of the tribulation is unleashed, they'll realize that that was the worst peace deal they ever made. But it will lead to meeting their true prince of peace. Yeah, yes. Antichrist, Antichrist is in place of. So the Antichrist role is he's trying to usurp Jesus Christ's position. So the Antichrist comes in as the man of peace, but it's a false peace. And we see that from both near and far. What you're describing happened way in the Old Testament. It happens again with Antichrist. But Antichrist is the man who comes in place of Christ. Yeah, he's both against and in place of. Both things are true. Anti. Both aspects of that word anti are encapsulated Antichrist 
claims to be a Christ, a replacement Christ, but his ultimate plan is against Christ to keep right. them from him. And so you see in the temptations in the wilderness when Jesus is tempted, you see Satan's plan of uh, to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, the angels will catch you, and Jesus says, you know, you shall not test. I think it's the one where... Isn't that not what Satan wanted to do in the first place? He wanted God's job. So he's like, hey, why are you giving him praise? I want to, I want the praise. And I think in like manner, the Antichrist comes and goes, hey, I'm in place of Christ. I'm trying to usurp and take his job and take his authority. Well, look, here's a way to look at it, uh, Rich, I think, that helps me. There's two messages in the world, if you sum it all up. The lie and the truth. Okay? The lie is the message of Antichrist, which is the message of Satan. And it goes all the way back to the garden. You should be like God. You can sin and not die. You can't trust God. The truth is Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's promises in Christ. So in Thessalonians, the one who, which one or either one or two, Eric will know better than me, but in Thessalonians, it says they were, they did not receive the love of the truth. So what's the alternative? They'll be deluded by the lie. They did not welcome the love of the truth, so they're deluded by the lie. The whole world is going to believe the lie. It already does. The lie is you should be like God. You don't have to listen to God. The truth is you need to submit to God and believe in him to find salvation. So it's true. That's two different messages. Yeah. Matthew 24, 24 says that even the elect would be deceived if that were possible. So I think that Antichrist is going to look really appealing even to evangelicals, he's going to look really good. It's going to be very deceiving. It'll be tricky. we got to be really on our toes. That's already happening. I published a little booklet on the Enneagram. It's, it's transparent that that Enneagram and the numbers they associate with and all that. It's transparently pagan. And they just bring it on in because it makes them feel good. And the discernment people are saying how pagan this is writing booklets, go making videos. This is pagan. This is not from God. And they want it anyhow. And I believe the reason for it is that they've never been converted. Evangelical churches are full of the unconverted. And the fact that they're lusting for some paganized spirituality, like he gets us or whatever it is, is evidence of being unconverted. Because when you're converted, you have a love for the truth. You can't be born again without being born with a love for the truth. And that was evident to me because my tune changed immediately. And the guys at work knew it. They were shocked. <laughs> I wouldn't have made such a big fool of myself had I not been a blasphemer the day before. But you know what? It was worth it to be converted, not to be a blasphemer, but to be a fool after the fact. Paul was like that. He became the fool when he was confronted by Jesus. He was breathing out blasphemy. All right, so you get that. Now, Luke 21, 24, it says, And they will fall by the edge of the sword, would be led captive to all the nations, 
and Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until, until, Acre, until the times, Kairos, which typically means crucial moment, are fulfilled, Plerao, Luke 21, 24. So those times of the Gentiles until there's this Plerao, this fulfillment, is fulfilled, is defining the church age. That began. Now I'm going to let Eric comment because he's been doing a video on this. Yeah, you know, I just want to point out if you have um, your Bibles open to Luke 21, Bob had mentioned something important. Matthew and Mark, Matthew 24, Mark 13, they both focus on the 70th week of Daniel, which is in the future. In Luke 21, Luke focuses on the future, but also on the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Let me show you why we know that. Luke 21, 12, notice when he says this, this is unique to Luke. He says, but before all this, right there shows you that now from 12 all the way to 24 that Bob just read, the focus is on 70 AD. Prior to that, he was talking about the end. After that, he's talking about the end. But Luke is the only gospel writer that has that phrase, but before all this, they will lay hands on you. And that shows you he's reverting back to referring to 70 AD and he's not talking about the future 70th week. And that goes all the way to verse 24, where Jerusalem will be trampled until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Then right. he reverts back to the future again. Yes. Thank you for that reading, Eric. That's very important. Luke focuses on the destruction of the temple. The end is still going to come, as it's thought elsewhere, especially in Matthew. But it's focusing on Jerusalem all the way from chapter 1 on. Jerusalem's rejecting prophets. They rejected Jesus. They're going to reject Paul. That's why I'm going through all this. This whole thing is leading to Jerusalem rejecting the prophets sent to her. And Jesus um, lamenting what happens here. And then um, it goes on in... Uh, let me go to Luke twenty-two forty-two. Luke twenty-two forty-two. As long as you're in Luke, Luke twenty-two forty-two. Let me give you another seeming antinomy here. What, what do you call that? I think that's right. Uh, seeming contradiction. Luke twenty-two forty-two saying, "Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me." Yet not my will, but yours be done. And so therefore, I pose the same question again, hoping it falls on receptive ears. And that's this. How can God the Son desire what God does not decree? How can God have desires that he doesn't decree? <laughs> now, the way it's typically solved is reject part of the scripture and believe the other, or reject some other part and believe this other part, but not to just embrace the whole truth. And I don't believe this is a contradiction because God is revealed in the Bible as being merciful, 
loving, compassionate, patient, and at one and the same time, just. So Jesus's lament in the garden, remove this cup from me. I think he was in the garden there. I may be off of my timing. I think, isn't that when he went to pray? Uh, this is not just melodrama or a little ear teaser for people reading this, but cold sober truth. We have a merciful Savior. And the Bible reveals that throughout. Now, I brought with me here some passages from Ezekiel 18 that often are believed by some groups of evangelicals and rejected by others. But we don't need to reject anything. We just need to learn. Now, let me give you a couple different things here that hopefully have put us face to face with the whole counsel of God. Now, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18, if you want to have your finger in there, but I'm going to use the other verses if you want to just hear them read. Let me give you Ezekiel 11, 19. Ezekiel 11, 19. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. What's that a prediction of? Conversion, regeneration. And you might say, that's great. That's the gift of God, which it is. But look at Ezekiel 18.31. Ezekiel 18.31. Cast away from you all your transgressions, which you've committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? So how at one and the same time is there a promise God will give you a new heart that only God can do, and a command to make yourself a new heart? I will believe the whole thing. Brother Paul is anxious to talk about this. <laughs> okay. I think it kind of goes back to, um, uh, or goes forward, whatever, goes to, uh, to Luke uh, 42, when he says, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. I don't think, uh, this shows Christ is struggling here, not because he wants to be contradictory to the Father, but that because he was made sin who knew no sin. He was, th that was the kind of the struggle he was in. But he said, but nonetheless, thy will, not mine, be done, because that's what the Father decreed to have happen. And I think the same thing is true here, that um, he would you would only be able to wrench the sin away from you had not the Holy Spirit already worked. Am I on target here? Yeah, the Holy Spirit gives the new heart, but he does use his means. And so, um, like Dr. Versa put said, there's a little Lutheran in all of us, but that's law and gospel idea. The command, make yourself a new heart, should get our attention if we're convicted. I can't. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? The lament of the sinner convicted. Paul's in, in uh, I believe, in Romans 7. But this 
is it may be a, a, an instant, maybe a millisecond. I mean, we, Ordo Salutis is a logical thing, not necessarily a chronological one. But fact is, order of salvation is what that means. However you want to say it, if that's distasteful to talk about theology, I grant that some people don't like to. But let's look at the scripture. How are you going to get a new heart? You're going to go to the seminar down at the local auditorium. Seminar on the new heart. Ten steps. Start this way. Make a plan. Part two, gather the tools you're going to need. Part three, make sure you have plenty of motivation. But I'm making this up as I go along. It's yeah, pretty good. Part four. Well, this is how evangelicalism portrays everything. A process and a plan. But this isn't the process or plan. This is the sober-minded word of God that strikes to the heart of the sinner, realizing that my problems are so bad that I can't reform myself. All I'm doing is making everybody around me miserable. And I know that I can't be pleasing to God. And I need Christ. Christ gives the new heart. So both things are in Deuteronomy. Make yourself a new heart. I or circumcise your heart, right? Both things are in Deuteronomy. Both things are in Ezekiel. I will give you the new heart. We don't have to throw one away or either one. We need to embrace it. Do you agree, Eric? God does it. You reminded me of the purpose of the law, according to Paul in Romans 3, is to drive us to our need. We're called to be holy. We're called to obey. We can't do it. It drives us to our need. You see it in the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. I can't do that. It drives you to the need. And so it's only by the power of God. Yeah, you know, honestly, looking back at that little re gentle rebuke I got from my professor, I wasn't really wrong but I wasn't proving it from Matthew by a reading. It was more taking something from later, Luther, Law, and Gospel, reading it back into the single passage. But if I would have focused on the impossible that comes up in Matthew, look at that word, and what's possible with impossible with man, possible with God, that would be a good reading. So you read Matthew to, for Matthew. Yes, Steve, Steve Grouch. I think the uh, the operating system for every Christian should be John fifteen five. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's our operating system. Everything stems from that. Yeah, abide in him. Amen. So let me continue on in Ezekiel. I'm challenging every last one of us, including me, to embrace the whole counsel of God and quit being parochial. To embrace the whole council parochial means I'm in my little group and that's how we do things. Ezekiel 18, 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather that he should turn from his ways and live? What's the implied answer? They should, he takes no pleasure, turn from your wicked ways and live. Verse 32. 
Ezekiel 18. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God, therefore repent and live. That's a, a moral command of God, repent and live. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? There's Jesus' lament. How often I would gather you as a hem would gather chicks, but you will not. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. It does not come unto judgment, but has passed out of death into life. But look at verse 40 of John 5. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may live. You are unwilling to come to me that you may live. All of this is to be found in these passages if you read the whole context. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes I will know, certainly not cast out. When I hear the debates, and this came up Wednesday night and uh, when uh, uh, Mark Amundsen was so skillfully teaching, um, I was glad I was able to hear, to, hear, to hear him. Um, the fact is, that the default position is the hard heart that will not come to God. That's default. That's what sin looks like. And it takes a supernatural work of God to bring that new heart through conversion. God uses means. And I will not listen to some parochial theologian who says God has to do certain things or he's not a loving God. Man was going to tell God how he has to run his own universe. Not a good look. <laughs> and there are, we can't do that. And I've had people say, you can't preach what you're preaching. Why not? Because you believe in God's sovereignty, therefore you can't preach this. No, I will preach the whole counsel of God because God's not embarrassed to reveal it. And why can't we embrace this? It's merciful. But the idea is people look back after they're converted, now that they love the Lord and they have the love of Jesus in their heart, and they realize how great it is, they assume everybody else feels the same way and God's not going to let them in because he has... Uh, only so many elect there are, and you know, so that's it. But that's, that's, <laughs> brothers and sisters, you didn't feel this way when you were a sinner. Not everybody's like Saul of Tarsus, but nobody would have mistaken me for somebody longing to be a Christian, but just has that hole in his heart, <laughs> waiting for it to come. I, no, I was, oh, I can't repeat what I said. It's embarrassing, it's blasphemous, it's wicked, and I deserve to drop right into hell. But God, being a merciful God, didn't do that. He allowed me enough space and time to hear the gospel and to repent. Amen. 
and now under threat of judgment. The rivers are going to turn to blood. That's not in most gospel tracts, nope. but it got to me. And I thought, if God judges me, I deserve it. Yes, brother. Yeah, I just, some of the guys here that do evangelism on the evangelism group are here. And when we talk to people, I, I just, I, what I kind of, and this kind of takes off a little bit on what you're saying. Once you establish that the Bible is the inspired word of God, once you realize that, then it's just not a good idea to argue with God. We like to tell people, don't argue with God. You're going to lose that argument. Instead, you've got to try to understand the full counsel right. of God, even if it's hard. Right. You just have to do that. So and we don't want to impute bad motives to whoever disagrees with us. The other people, they have bad motives, and that's why they preach whatever they do. We don't know the heart. God knows the heart. 1 Corinthians 4 5, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who knows the thoughts and the intents of the heart, the motives of the heart. We don't know that somebody preaches the universal call out of bad motives, nor that we know, do we know that somebody preaches the doctrine of election out of bad motives, and we don't know the heart God does. But uh, I'll tell you, what I know of my own motives, the heart is desperately wicked, who can honor only God. We can have bad motives and not know it. God will reveal them to help us. But I can tell you this. I know what happens when you don't preach the whole counsel of God. I know what happens when you tell people what they want to hear. I know what happens when you skip around the Bible and only take the verses you like. I know that because I did it for five or six years. And what, it ha what, it, what happens is it creates a lot of hopeless people, disillusioned with Christianity, that think that God can't be trusted, and that they didn't do something right, and it must be their, their own fault that everything went wrong, and maybe they need something different. And when that became clear, I was smitten to the heart that if I'm going to preach it all, I need to preach all of the passages the whole paragraph, the whole chapter, the whole book, and not just skip around for proof text, because you can create any religion you want out of the Bible by skipping around. Amen. We may be slow, but we don't skip. <laughs> All right. We've been here for a while. We're not skipping. We're going to get there. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the third day, though, on, on the last day, excuse me. The one that comes will be raised up. Now, that all being said, this is the background for Paul going to Jerusalem. And so we have this, um, let me focus on this. As Jesus in Gethsemane, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will but thine. The conflict, how often I would gather you under my wings as a, a uh, hand would gather chicks. This, this desire, this hunger in Jesus for the salvation of Jerusalem and her residents juxtaposed with the certainty of judgment and wrath being poured out. They're both true. They're both in the travel narrative of Jerusalem, and they're, all, they're both in the travel narrative of Acts. Paul is on his way to a city that's facing judgment. That's Jerusalem. There's a church there. There are devoted believers there. But Jerusalem is in trouble. 
So Acts 21, 10 through 11, and we were staying there for some days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands. Prophetic demonstration here, like you see in the Old Testament. Quote, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, we saw earlier that Jerusalem will be delivered, trodden underfoot by the Gentiles. Now, that happens yet later than this. The danger to Paul in Jerusalem is a theme in this travel narrative. Later, Jesus will affirm his purpose, Acts 23, 11. And that would be that Paul would go all the way to Rome. The Great Commission in Luke and in Acts, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the outermost parts of the earth. All of that's being fulfilled. The Samaritans earlier not welcoming Jesus caused a lament, but it didn't cause him to call down fire. Who wanted to call down the fire? James and John, the disciples. Do you want us to call fire down? These Samaritans, they're disgusting. Let's burn them. <laughs> Piles of ashes where they used to stand. No. Samaria is going to be the target of the gospel. God's going to save Samaritans. Dear ones, we don't know. We don't know who's going to come. We don't know whose heart's going to be changed. We don't know whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. We know what we know and what's revealed, and we can rightfully have the same passion, love, and uh, feelings of sorrow that Jesus expressed. When we see those that we know that aren't Christians, it sorrows us. And we don't know. We don't know when they will come to the Lord. Maybe they never will. I promise you this. Go into Revelation and look at the saints, and I'll tell you they're rejoicing. We're not going to be spending eternity in lament. We're not. Because when we know what's revealed then, that's not revealed now, we'll see that God did everything that would bring glory to him and that that's the way it should be. And we can't think. So we're trying to think back, you know, now as a Christian, do our unsaved friends should think like we do now? Why would they not want this? Or trying to think forward to, what, to heaven where we aren't yet. And right now we're in a place of sorrow and lament and also rejoicing and hope. Both things are true. Now, how could they be pleading with Paul not to go to Jerusalem when all the indication is he has to go there? Because yeah. they're human beings. If somebody that you love comes and says, I'm going to go there, and they're going to be arrested and, who knows, maybe killed, of course you lament. But in the end, they say, the will of the Lord be done. And we heard this as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, Why are you doing what are you doing? Weeping, breaking my heart. 
for I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent. We noticed, including Luke, Luke was one of them, remarking the will of the Lord be done. They trusted that the will of the Lord was for Paul to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to go to Jerusalem to be rejected. That's exactly what the master did. So I can't tell you I have some answer that hasn't already been discussed in many, many, many thousands of words in church history. But I do believe the Bible presents both things to be true. That Jesus both desires the peace of Jerusalem and goes there to be rejected and predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. Both things are true. And it doesn't mean a lack of love, and it doesn't mean a lack of power. To those who say the way you solve all the problems is diminish God's power and say he can't do what he wants to do. I would urge supreme caution. When you start removing power from being ascribed to God, you are in danger of dishonoring God giving an answer that the Bible doesn't give. The problem isn't the lack of God's power. It's a commitment to God's purposes, which are not our purposes. And that, I believe, is correct. So um, just honor God. Honor God. Don't dishonor him. Be patient and ask him to give you peace and comfort in your heart. Paul was willing to keep going, and they finally said, the will of the Lord be done. And that's it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Pray for Pastor Eric as he proclaims your word from Matthew to us. May we learn from what's taught us in that, in that sermon, and may we learn as we study your Bible and continue to support you one another, and give you the praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, dear saints. See you upstairs.